Cuba. It's just 90 miles off the coast of Florida, but a world away. It's a time warp land with classic old cars and a classic old dictator. It's a friendly island with a thriving cultural and art scene, dreamy beaches, and great prices. That's why, these days, Cuba is the most popular Caribbean destination among Canadians. Most citizens of the United States are forbidden to visit Cuba by our government. But more and more Americans are finding ways to visit, and they're loving it. I haven't been there, and I'm curious. Why can't we go? When is it okay? Who's sneaking in, and how? What's the risk? And what are the rewards? We've got Chris Baker, a man who fell in love with the island and its people. He's written several books on Cuba, and he's right here to answer your questions. It's Cuba, next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're going to Cuba, and I've got with me a man who has written an incredible guidebook on Cuba, Christopher P. Baker. Chris was born in Yorkshire, England. He's got a master's degree in Latin American studies from Liverpool University. He's been writing since 1978, and since 83, he's made his living as a professional travel writer. He's published in more than 150 uh, publications worldwide. He's um, frequently on radio and talk shows and so on, and he does guest lecturing on a cruise ship in the Caribbean. That's a pretty cool gig. And Christopher has four times won the prestigious Lowell Thomas Travel Journalism Award. He lives in California and spends a lot of time in Cuba. Christopher P. Baker, author of The Moon Handbook to Cuba. Christopher, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Rick. What a fascinating area of expertise you have, Cuba. Oh, I am so delighted that I'm writing about Cuba. You know, I write about other destinations, but I am always so excited when I go to that country. It is so unique, so inspiring, and so fulfilling. Now, Christopher, you know about the Caribbean because you're a guest lecturer on a cruise ship that cruises to many islands and so on, right? That's correct, actually, various cruise ships. I used to be on faculty for Cunard. I'm now lecturing for Holland America. Boy, that must be a nice job. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I generally treat it as a working vacation. I take my work with me. In fact, uh, I just came off a uh, Holland America trip, and I was working on the new edition of the Cuba Moon Hammer. All right. Cuba. Yeah, I understand when you're uh, working as an entertainer or a teacher on a cruise ship, you, you work a few hours a week, and the rest of the time it's just trying not to get sunburned. That's right. Well, I stick out of the sun these days and get myself a nice shady spot and uh, get my book in hand, do some reading and do some work, and I'm totally happy. Oh, that's great. Now, how much experience do you have traveling in Cuba? Oh, I've made more than 30 visits during um, more than a decade now, mm. and um, actually took my motorcycle there in 96, wrote a book about that, and motorcycled for three months, 7,000 miles. In Cuba? In Cuba. It's yeah. a small island. What is it? It's uh, 11 million people. It's 11 million people. It's about 800 miles uh, east to west. Um, but it, I think it takes a lot of people by surprise in terms of um, the distances and the, some difficulties that can be encountered with travel for, for travelers. I would imagine 90% of the visitors just stick to Havana and maybe a famous beach resort or something. And certainly if you're going for a short period, it's worthwhile sticking with Havana because there is so much in Havana, especially old Havana, which is this incredible colonial enclave of more than 900 buildings of historical importance has been renovated right now. Absolutely fantastic castles, palaces, cobbled plazas, oh. Hemingway's ghost walking down the street. Oh, my goodness. You know, this is a classic example, Christopher, of a place that for various reasons becomes mothballed, economic reasons. So many of my favorite places in Europe are so beautiful and great and popular today and affluent today because, ironically, of an economic downturn that kept them so um, in hibernation as far as economic development goes that nothing was changed. And Cuba, in the last 30 or 40 years has uh, probably been mothballed in a, from, a, from a modern building's point of view. Is that true? Oh, it's very true, but not just um, with regard to buildings, with regard to cars, etc. You've had a, an embargo in place now for 40 years. And the remarkable thing, it's only 90 miles from the malls and McDonald's of Florida, but you feel when you arrive in Cuba, if you've stepped across this arcane threshold to discover an unexpected and a haunting realm full of eccentricity, eroticism, and enigma. It's, um, you know, with the castles, the old cars, 50s era is still there. You still see the 50s signposts still swinging on rusty hinges. Oh, man. The breeze, it awesome place. Makes and, you know, the Cadillacs, the Edsels, the Kaisers rolling down the streets. 
Uh, it's quite a tremendous and almost surreal setting, and this is one of the things I really love about Cuba. What did you say earlier, a haunting realm of... A haunting realm full of, uh, well, uh, it's erotic. I, I, I cut the word enigma, erotic, enigma. Ex- eccentric place. Wow. And in your book, you say it's the most exhilarating and occasionally exasperating destination in the Americas. <laughs> what do you mean by exhilarating and exasperating? Well, exhilarating in the sense that it is so surreal. It is so different. You, you'd never want to sleep for fear of missing a vital experience. Exasperating in the sense that it, it is a communist system. Um, thing, you know, the infrastructure is failing in so many regards. The bureaucracy, which doesn't impinge on most travelers, but for myself as a journalist, I come across um, the bureaucracy, the public transportation, etc. It's a disaster in so many ways. I, you know, I could say glorious, wonderful things about um, the accomplishments of the revolution, and then there's always that, that negative side. Yeah, and from a money point of view, I know from my own experience back in the communist days in Eastern Europe, I got a group, I'm going through Hungary, I, want, I need some food, here's money, like, come on, this is money, you're supposed to respond, and people don't respond, you know, it's like, it's not, I'm not going to make any money off of that, so you'll have to wait until I'm good and ready to make you a hot dog. <laughs> So you got that exasperation, I guess, of working in. But aren't, tell me about, okay, we've got this kind of old-school communist system, like I can relate to back in uh, the days of going to the Soviet Union when you could spend money here but not there, and there was two price schedules, one for local people and, and, and one for capitalists. Um, but there were concessions made so Americans could travel in that communist realm because they wanted the hard currency. Can, tell me a little bit about the structure that way, because I know Cuba enjoys getting some hard currency from, from American well, travelers. It, yeah. It's absolutely the same as you described for the old Soviet Union. Um, Cuba actually relies on tourism. Believe it or not, despite the restrictions that exist for U.S. travelers, there were 2 million tourists arrived in Cuba last year. 2 million tourists came to Cuba. That's huge. Yeah, must be one of the major... It's growing uh, at a remarkable rate, and Cuba has obviously put its eggs, eggs in the tourism basket. We're talking here of Canadians, Europeans, a lot of South Americans. Now, I heard Cuba is the number one Caribbean destination for Canadians. Is that true? That is true, uh, but Europeans are there in flocks. I mean, the English began to discover Cuba about five years ago, and now they're already at the, the third largest group. Um, I think that when the United States gets outvoted in the United Nations routinely 140 to 4, issues on Cuba are one of those kind of lopsided votes. Yeah, well, yes, always. Uh, the, the world looks at the embargo, which is you know a failed enterprise of four decades old, as just the most ridiculous uh, aspect of international policies right now. It's pretty blatantly driven by electoral needs in Florida. I mean, oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Right. Now, um, 1998, the Caribbean Tourist Organization named you Travel Journalist of the Year for a work on Cuba. Now, that's quite a, a an amazing thing that the Caribbean Tourist Organization, that covers everything down there, the Virgin Islands, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, and so on, and they honored a person that focuses on Cuba. Well, Cuba is a part of the um, Caribbean Tourism Organization. But it's not, it's not a black sheep in that. They're not going to blackball them because of our embargo on them. Oh, no, no, they don't. Um, although there are certain entities, international entities, pay the price. Super Clubs, which is a very well-known um, Jamaican chain, manages several properties, hotels in Cuba, and were recently had to pull out of Cuba because of threats from the, the U.S. Um, vis-a-vis you know, a certain provisions within U.S. law regarding international business in Cuba, but wow. that's rather an arcane topic. I'm talking with Christopher P. Baker. He's the author of The Moon Handbook to Cuba. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and right now we're in Cuba, and we've got Sandy on the line in Madison, Wisconsin. My question is, do you recommend that uh, people traveling to Cuba rent a car so that they can travel around the island and meet some of the locals rather than stay in a resort area? Oh, well, hi, Sandy. Um, yes, absolutely. A good question. Um, there's no doubt about it that it's very easy to go to Cuba and learn nothing about Cuba and the Cubans, and that would be especially true for if you stayed at the beach resorts, many of which are actually off-limits to Cubans. But um, it is quite possible to rent a car, to travel around the island, and to stay at Casas Particulares. These are um, private room rentals offered by Cubans who are licensed to take in foreigners. That's the way to go. In that, by doing that, you, you really get to know something about the real realities of lifestyles for the Cubans, and you enjoy your experience so much more. Christopher, you said casas particulares. That's the same. Uh, you find those in Spain, I believe, uh, staying in people's homes, bed and breakfast, basically. Correct. You're saying these are licensed by the government, so there's no problem with the government for these people in the countryside and small villages actually hosting American travelers. 
Correct, but they must have that license. Oh. Uh, there are certain restrictions, in fact, quite a lot of restrictions, but wherever you are in Cuba, you will usually find Casas Particularis. And there's one good reason for that. The government has actually been uh, limiting the number of um, these private room rentals, but the reason that they do exist is that in so many parts of the country, there are just insufficient hotel rooms right now run by the government to cater to tourists. What would a room cost in a Casas Particularis? Um, typically in Havana, a Casa Particulari would cost uh, around 25 to $35. Outside Havana, it's much less. You can get a Casa Particular for about 15 to $20. For a double room? Um, usually for a double yeah. room. So, Sandy, and you rent a car. Can you rent one of those big old uh, classic American cars? <laughs> well, I wouldn't recommend you rent a big old uh, classic American car, but um, there are some Audis, there are some Volvos, there are some Mercedes to be rented. Usually you'll get a a Japanese car. The maintenance uh, of these vehicles is an issue, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. they are there and they're almost uh, they're available almost throughout the island. Sandy, does that help you? It does. Thank you very have much. Have you been to Cuba, Sandy? I have, and that was one of our best experiences was traveling with other Cubans. And now, how did you get to Cuba? Do you mind saying? Uh, we actually went through Toronto. Through Toronto, and have mm-hmm. you had any? Um, you haven't been arrested or anything? Not at no. all. In fact, uh, the Canadians were very understanding about the fact that we were returning to the U.S. So they didn't stamp our passport. Yeah, I understand. It's like going to Israel in the old days. You couldn't cross in from the Arab world into Israel. Or you could, but they wouldn't stamp your passport because you'd have trouble in other Arab countries or other Muslim countries. And now uh, the same sort of uh, um, you know, uh, help is given people, uh, Americans who go to Cuba via other countries. They don't stamp their passport. Right. All right, Sandy, are you heading back to Cuba then? Uh, not in the near future, okay. but I really appreciate the answer to the question. Good. Happy travels. Thanks for your call, Sandy. Fifty-eight Chevy, a big stogie, and a Cuba Libre. We got more stories about travel in Cuba coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Με λένε Πένι, είμαι από του Δελφού και ταξιδεύω με τον Ρίκ Στίβ. That was Greek. I'm Penny from Delphi, Greece, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Με λένε Penny, είμαι από του Δελφού και ταξιδεύω με τον Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves and we're travel partners. Call me at 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. We have Lisa on the line in Seattle. Thanks for your call. What's your question? Uh, my question is you had talked about the travel embargoes and I was wondering if it was technically legal for Americans to go and uh, if so, why aren't there any flights from the U.S.? Cuba. Have you been to Cuba yet, Lisa? I have not. I've been to Key West, which was very close. Right. Let's talk about that because, you know, this has been one of the most, um, the hottest topics I've had in this program. We've announced an interview is Cuba. There's so many people that have been to Cuba and are fanatic about it. There's so many Americans that want to go to Cuba, but they don't know how to go. There's so many people that realize two million travelers go to Cuba every year. It's the number one Canadian uh, destination in the Caribbean for Canadians, and Americans want to want to know what is the story. Chris, can, can you give us um, just a, a good primer on how Americans, what Americans are dealing with when they want to go to Cuba? Okay, let's keep this brief. Um, firstly, it's not illegal to travel to Cuba. It's merely illegal to travel to trade with Cuba. That means you you break the law as soon as you. Um, tip the taxi driver as soon as you leave the airport in Havana. However, having said that, there are certain provisions within U.S. law for very, very specific types of individuals to travel to Cuba. Unfortunately, they're so restrictive that that means a sports figure going for a competition, a journalist, a full-time journalist for an accredited news organization, certain Cuban or Cuban Americans who can now only visit their family once every three years. For the most part, 98% plus of the U.S. population these days probably can't find a way to go, unfortunately. The Clinton administration had opened the door and pretty much everybody could find a legal way to go. Now, um, very restrictive, and uh, the Bush administration is actually now beginning to police this. I'm talking with Christopher P. Baker, who writes The Moon Handbook to Cuba, let me read a few more uh, emails from people. Mario in Miami wrote, Most Americans are not permitted to travel to Cuba legally. Wait until Cuba is free again. I suppose that's a common uh, sentiment for a lot of people in Miami. Uh, absolutely. You know, the, but the, the community of Cuban Americans in Florida is now divided. The moderates uh, want to engage with Castro. They realize the embargo has been a failed enterprise for 40 years. But um, Bush administration policy is certainly dictated by the more hardline approach of Cuban-Americans who want absolutely no accommodation whatsoever with Fidel. Henry in Napa, California writes, uh, Cuba people are suffering. Boycott Cuba to get rid of Castro. Uh, is the boycott an effective way to get rid of Castro? Well, we've had a boycott for four decades. In fact, the argument amongst uh, people who truly do know Cuban reality uh, is that the, the, if, if the goal is to, to get rid of Castro, the quickest way to do it is to lift the embargo and flood the country with dollars. <laughs> I think Fidel probably understands Boy, that. Boy, that's thinking <laughs> out of the box. All right. Well, let's just, there's a, a lot of nervousness. A lot of people want to go, but a lot of people are law-abiding. They don't want to get arrested and so on. And I heard that you risk a huge fine if you do go. Let's say Christopher P. Baker, author of The Moon Handbook to Cuba, who rides his motorcycle all over Cuba routinely, how can an American... Um, go to Cuba right now. Just walk me through the stages. So, you, I mean, because you can't fly from Chicago to Cuba. What do you do? Well, there are actually f direct flights to Havana from Los Angeles, New York, or Miami for those individuals who are legally entitled to travel to Cuba. You would need to check with um, with the Treasury Department, uh, U.S. Treasury Department, to or buy the handbook and to learn who can travel legally. If you don't want to do it legally, if you can't, don't have a license, then you can go through the. Canada, Jamaica, through Bahamas, through Cancun, through Costa Rica, etc. From Mexico, is flight. there a flight from Yucatan or something? Um, there are daily flights from Cancun. Absolutely, from two two airlines, uh, including Cubana, um, fly from from Merida. Um, from Cancun, from Merida, from Mexico City, okay. from Tijuana. How many how many Americans um, sneak into Cuba from other countries a year? Um, okay, the, the statistics have changed this last year, but um, for 2003, there were over 160,000 U.S. citizens traveled to Cuba, of which about 30,000 plus did so. Uh, let's put it in inverted commas illegally. 30,000. Boy, your book would sell a lot better if this embargo was lifted. Oh, 
No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to say. I have five books. On Sorry Cuba. to say. I sure see a lift in my income. Hey, Christopher, let's talk a minute about these cars. I mean, it must be incredible if you're a, an aficionado of uh, aficionado of great old cars. Uh, what is it like? I mean, give me a little insight into that. Absolutely astonishing. Um, you know, I, I just published a book called Cuba Classics, a celebration of vintage American automobiles as a coffee table book. And I did a thorough study of the whole scenario. And about one in six passenger vehicles in Cuba predates the revolution. That means it's pre-1961. The astonishing thing is that the, av- the taxi fleet in Havana, for example, the average vehicle would be an old 1958 Cadillac. When you travel around the countryside, you come across Kaisers and Hudsons and Studebakers. Studebakers are a dime a dozen. Wow. Is there a market for these? They sell them and fix them up and just keep them alive? Well, it's very difficult because, um, you know, the embargo means there'd be no spare parts. And Cubans don't have money to buy whatever spare parts there are. So they're, they're geniuses of mechanical invention. That was the same in Nicaragua. When I was down in Nicaragua during the Sandinista times, uh, you know, there was a heavy embargo and they became very clever at just uh, ad-libbing different fixes. Oh, absolutely. You know, parts cannibalized from other vehicles, um, Welding is the kind of the, the default mode of fixing something. So you could take a little ride through the countryside in a, in a fine old American car. Oh, absolutely. With, with a, you know, with a, a taxi. way to go. You could rent a taxi for half a day, I suppose. Uh, well, uh, uh, alas, unfortunately, it's now illegal for Cubans with those cars to pick up foreigners. But the, the Cuban government done, does run what's called Gran Caribe, uh, Gran Car, which is the old 1950s model legal taxis. Wow. All right. Tell tell us a little more about the the uh, tobacco industry and so on. We all hear about these uh, Cuban cigars. Can you visit um, uh, Fabrica? Yeah, um, there are within Havana five different cigar factories that are open to the public. Absolutely wonderful experience to go in there and see how the world's finest cigars are made. Of course, almost every city in Cuba has its own cigar factory. Most of them making for the domestic market. You're welcome to go in there. Many of them run organized tours. Most of them have humidors selling quality cigars. And it's also fun to drive around on your own and visit um, a couple of the the famous tobacco-growing areas, such as uh, Vinales in the province of Pina del Rio, and walk into the fields and visit with a farmer and get to to learn yourself about the the first stages of tobacco production. Christopher, you write in your book, uh, The Moon Handbook to Cuba, you write uh, that uh, Cuba has unique arts, especially in music and dance, very vibrant. Uh, Even though they've got a communist uh, sort of regime and so on, they've got free uh, artistic expression, or how does that uh, work together? Well, in fact, the Cuban government um, has been tremendously supportive of the arts. Um, We all know the restrictions that exist. You better not write the wrong thing, (laughs) or there'll be trouble. But within Cuba, the, the government has supported music, supported dance, supported the broad range of cultures, and because of that, culture actually spontaneously kind of grows out of the countryside from the villages. Many of the artist friends I have grew up in the countryside. They're sponsored, they're sent, if they're identified as being capable artists, they may end up in a special school, receive special training, etc. But the, the Cuban... Um, the, the, the aspects, the political aspects have also given rise to um, tremendous vitality and expression within art itself. Musically, of course, the Cubans are incredibly vivacious. They've wow. always been at the forefront of son and salsa. And, and this music is accessible to the tourist? Oh, absolutely. Music everywhere you go. In fact, um, you know, just walking down the streets, there are so few places I've ever been in wow. the world. Affordable? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the, the music is just there. It's on the streets, almost every but, cafe. But what if you want to go to high, high culture, you know, in a big concert hall in Havana? Um, absolutely. The Ballet of Cuba, the National Ballet of Cuba, is one of the world's premier ballet oh, cool. corps. Wow. Hey, we've got some more calls on the line here. I'm talking with Christopher P. Baker, the author of The Moon Handbook to Cuba, and I'd like to talk to Darlene in Edmonds, Washington. Darlene, are you there? Yes, I am. Thanks for your call. What's your question for Christopher? Well, um, I had an opportunity to travel in uh, Cuba back in 2001. My husband and I traveled there on a religious visa through the uh, Presbyterian Church. And uh, probably rather than a question, just an affirmation of many of the things that Christopher has spoken to in terms of uh, the old cars and stepping back in time and... uh, one of the people that we worked with, uh, we were doing uh, learning Spanish, with, and we had a tutor. Um, this is a lady who was 78 years old, and one of her 
we had a lot of discussion about the revolution, and of course, uh, she experienced all of that. And her comment to us was that she did not consider herself a fidelista, but that times were so much better since Fidel Castro had come into uh, power prior to the revolution, um, that life was better for everybody. And yet then some of the younger generation that we encountered um, had a lot of a lot more animosity toward Fidel and some of the issues that they're dealing with. They and you were they, there with your church, and you were um, the people were comfortable talking with you. They were very comfortable talking with us, and they made it very clear to us. In this, we talked to a lot of people that their issues they had nothing against the American people, but they really felt that the issues were between. Um, our governments, and they were very kind to us. Wow. Very warm, inviting, um, very ang- eager to talk with, yeah. with America. So there wasn't a, there, you didn't, I, I guess, you know, when you think of developing countries and poor countries and struggling countries, there's repressive uh, right-wing governments and there's repressive left-wing governments, and, and I guess what people are saying here, and I think what Christopher is saying, going down there does not necessarily mean you support Castro. Going down there is a chance to connect with real people, as you did with your church. You probably weren't going down there to support Castro. What were you doing? We were down there. Um, we were, uh, at the time, serving a church in uh, New York City with a large uh, Latino population, and my husband was pastor of the church, and he wanted to learn Spanish to better communicate with the members of his church. And uh, so we had this opportunity and we took advantage of it. Were you interested while you're down there in revolutionary history, or were there any sites that you saw? Uh, yes, we uh, had an opportunity to travel to places like Cienfuegos, uh, Santiago, and Santa Clara. And Santa Clara is the place where uh, the last battle of the revolution took place. And um, our guide was uh, very knowledgeable uh, in terms of... Uh, his history of Cuba, and um, so we were, you know, we have a lot of video, in fact, hmm. of uh, bullet holes that are still in apartment uh, uh, walls on the outside from where that um, that last battle took place. Have they been left there because they don't have money to fix it, or have they been left there as a memorial? You know, I don't know the answer to Christopher, that. Christopher, what do you think? Um, it might it, be a little bit been of left there. I'm sorry to jump in, yeah. It's mm-hmm. been left there as a memorial um, to the revolution, absolutely. All right. All right. Hey, well, Darlene, thank you for sharing your experience. Yes, thank you. I'm talking with Christopher P. Baker, who writes The Moon Handbook to Cuba. Christopher, a lot of people are curious about Cuba, and... You know, there's a case for not going there because you've got a dictator and no democracy and so on, and you've got a case for going there. Can you, I know that you're a, a fan of Cuba and not necessarily a fan of uh, an, an enemy of democracy or anything like that, but how can you go to Cuba and how can you promote going to Cuba when a lot of Americans think it's wrong? Uh, well, there's two separate issues here. The first is um, my constitutional right to travel freely, to determine for myself uh, what realities are. Uh, I think that's a constitutional right that's uh, been written up for for years. But anyway, apart from that, um, how do you, how can you learn reality of Cuba? How can you support Cubans unless you can go there freely and uh, contribute to to the the welfare of individuals, share with them culturally, share with these um, people on a cultural level, and um, engage with them to the point that you the understanding helps relations and perhaps. Uh, helps their material circumstance also. Because they can see uh, that that we're not evil, and they can see there's goodness in our system, and we can see there's some goodness in their system. Absolutely, and there's plenty of goodness in the in the Cuban system. In fact, you know, the, the accomplishments in health and uh, education, uh, the, the two very well-known accomplishments of the revolution, but it goes beyond that. I think the value system that the Cubans have um, provide lessons for the rest of the world. I mean, the Cubans are so gracious so full of integrity, so full of generosity. Uh, and part of this, the value system that they, they hold as a culture, is definitely a result of the revolution. There are certainly many, many positive aspects um, to the system that they've created 
uniquely over 50 years. And I've heard that um, literacy is very, very high there. Literacy is fabulous. I mean, wherever you go, whether you're in the countryside uh, or in the cities, almost everybody is not just literate in the sense that they can read and, and write, but even in your average conversation, even with a peasant, it may be, may be that that individual will quote to you from classical literature, drawing it into a conversation, mm. an experience you would rarely have, for example, in the USA. Wow. Now, um, I'm just going to read some emails that we've got from people, Christopher, and you can just comment uh, briefly. Uh, one person wrote us, Rick, I think it would be wise to forget discussing any travel to Cuba as long as Fidel Castro holds his dictatorial sway over the poor enslaved serfs who have no real choice over who rules them. Well, there's certainly a lot of truth to that. There are no free elections and... Um uh, whilst I don't want to use the title dictator, this, the restrictions uh, are well documented in Cuba. Poor enslaved um, serfs. Um, well, uh, <laughs> let me give you an anecdote there. Um, Cuba is a divided society. Certainly, probably, let's just for the sake of argument, say 50% of the people will, are very ready for a change. But another 50%, especially in the countryside, do support Fidel. The anecdote that I'd love to tell you is of when I arrived on my motorcycle in Vinales, which is the area known for tobacco, and I, I visited a tobacco family to get kind of Tobacco 101. And there hanging in their kitchen was a photograph of Fidel. And um, I asked them how had communism treated them. And um, Alejandro, the farmer, said to me, you know, we're not rich like you North Americanos, but the revolution has been good to us. We have our food and our health, etc." And uh, his wife said to me, why are you Americans so hard on us Cubans? You need to lighten up on us. And she embraced me as I left, and she, she gave me a full bag of tomatoes. Um, and that was expressive of the kind of graciousness and generosity I'm talking about, but also expressive of the support and affection that Fidel has amongst a large percentage of the Cubans. It's a very, very complex scenario when you're discussing what Cubans feel. classic cars, the world's best cigars, but most of all, incredible people and a lively, thriving cultural scene. This is Cuba, a country our government doesn't want us to visit. But we're going to talk about Cuba coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. Can you describe the place where you live so that other travelers would want to visit it? Maybe you live in a popular destination and you have a unique take on it. Or perhaps you live in a place that nobody visits and you think they should. See if you can single-handedly bump up the tourist trade in your hometown. Send us a short hometown promo and we'll use our favorites on the air and post them on our website. For all the details, see ricksteves.com. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Call me toll-free at 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. As together, we travel with Rick Steves. We've got Terry on the line in San Francisco. Terry, what are you thinking? Well, I wanted to share my experiences. I've been to Cuba four times now, uh, and always attending professional conferences where I've by invitation, made a presentation. So I have to say my experience is probably a bit skewed in that I've always had hosts who have shown me around, and uh, I've also taken some time to go out on my own. But uh, I knew before I went the first time that Cuba was special. It was in my heart somehow, and it still is. Christopher, can you relate to that? I think that's the most beautiful comment we've we've heard, and very true. I think anybody who goes to Cuba has um, a response similar to that, where you bring Cuba back with you, and you carry it with you for the rest of your life, and you actually can't wait to go back. And it's really all about communicating with the people, the value system, the way they live, 
um, etc. You know, it seems to me Central American societies are a little more communal. It doesn't mean communism, but they work together in a communal way. And it's it seems that, that they would handle this kind of a, a system a little easier than societies that are more rugged individualist. That's right. Um, I go uh, to psychology conferences. I'm a, a family psychologist. And the term that they use is familismo. Hmm. And that means not only are they connected to their immediate families, but they bring people in, anybody that they make uh, an intense connection with, and they do it easily, is familismo. Hmm. And so this kind of extended family feeling is real. And it is true that when you're walking around Havana or anywhere else, strangers will come up to you, and they don't hesitate in the Anglo sense. They say, where are you from? How much money do you make? <laughs> Who are your children? What are their names? Yeah. And frankly, most of them are not husbands. It's endearing, isn't it? Yes, very I... much. I just want to make one other comment about getting there. I uh, have never gone on a license from the State Department. It seems I've never had time. So I've always made my own arrangements, uh, which is much like tourists huh. do. So you could have gone, had you gone through all the hoops, because you're going on business, you could have got the license to go directly from Chicago or, or L.A. or whatever, but you went through Mexico or Canada like the tourists who sneak in. Yeah, the uh, you have to take a charter flight. They usually go twice a week, depending where from. But I've gone through a through Mexico. Boy, there's something about this. Isn't, isn't the Spanish word mi casa, su, su casa, or something like that? Um, my house is your house. When I was in El Salvador and Nicaragua, in these little villages, people invited you right in, and they genuinely wanted you to stay. I mean, it was like, mm-hmm. it, was very, um, it was very emotional to travel in these countries. If you, uh, very, very true. And this is um, ubiquitous throughout Cuba, and it's part of the reason that uh, I think most people who go to Cuba just come back saying, wow, these people are Incredible, and that's an incredible experience. Wow. True. And Terry, you've gone three or four times um, the way the tourists sneak in through Mexico or, mm-hmm. or Canada, and you've, you've um, done it without any sort of um, harassment or any problem. That's true. But I did read the advisories before I went the last time, and the uh, official advisories are much stricter not to bring anything back, whereas mm-hmm. in the past, you know, my hosts have given me some aged Cuban rum, and you are not supposed to bring anything back this time. And it's also more difficult to make those arrangements through third countries, Canada or or Mexico. So I would uh, add a little bit more caution to those that are going on their own. Okay, so the uh, tenor is a little different. Now, we do have a man who's a travel agent in Vancouver, B.C. on the line who's going to talk to us. Terry, I want to thank you for your call. Thank you, Rick. Marcel in Vancouver, B.C. Thank you for calling. Now, you're a man who has, um, you've got a business and you help Americans get to Cuba. Well, we're a nonprofit based in Vancouver, and we... We do help Americans go to Cuba. We um, let, Before the travel restrictions were put in place, we sent hundreds and hundreds of uh, college and high school students to Cuba. And now, um, with the new regulations that came into effect last June, uh, most of the people that we help go to Cuba are going uh, through Canada or a third country because it's so difficult for them to get a license at this point. Do you also serve as a a travel agency for Canadians wanting to go to Cuba? Oh, yes, yes. That must be a big part of your business. That that is. There's about 425,000 Canadians that went to Cuba last year, and that's probably going to increase this year. So what is your take on the the situation? Um, What would you advise Americans? Is it um, wrong? Is it dangerous? Will it be a regrettable move? Well, it's certainly not dangerous in terms of the Cuban experience because uh, it's a very, very safe country. But um, we... The first thing we do is advise Americans what the possible ramifications are if they are caught going to Cuba without a license. And I've heard in part of your program uh, that that people seem quite well aware of that, the potential fine of up to $7,500. And as long as people know that they can get in trouble, um, and they're willing to take the risk, then we're uh, willing to help them. So far, none of our travelers have gotten in trouble from going to Cuba because they go through Canada, and the Canadians are very good about uh, not stamping the passport when they return to Canada. So because if they tell the Canadian Customs that they've been to Cuba, the Customs are quite sympathetic 
and they'll honor that. And as, as Chris and others have said, that the Cubans will not stamp an American passport. So the real issue is you bring something back and your bags are searched, then you're going to be in trouble for two things. One, for going to Cuba, and secondly, lying to uh, immigration on your return to the state. Which is a very serious matter. Both of them are serious matters, yes. Does that get you beyond the $7,500 fine? Uh, no, or, no. Oh, oh really? So the worst scenario is you're fined $7,500. Let me just say that um, most of the fines that have been um, put out there are about $7,500. However, the provision in the law is for about 10 times that amount, potentially. I see. Yes, so and Chris is right about that. And most of the people who challenge the fines, if, if, they, get a, if they are fined and they challenge them, most of them are being reduced uh, downwards to between 3000 and $1,500. Why would they do that? I would think they'd throw the book at people. Well, that may that may change. It's getting uh, travel restrictions and uh, restrictions against Cuba in general are becoming uh, stronger. It seems week by week and month by month. Travelers so, I know, travelers I know, just feel in their gut that if our government tells us we can't go somewhere, we feel violated. We want to be able to go there. Well, I think the right to association is. Uh, is a constitutional right, and uh, naturally, it's it's a healthy response for Americans to feel violated by the restrictions against Cuba. Now, your Marcel, your travel agency is www.cubafriends.ca for Canada. That's right, uh-huh. Cuba Friends plural dot ca. Uh-huh. And we have a lot of information on there for uh, U.S. visitors about how to travel to Cuba. And we've had people calling in who have gone legally with church groups. You can go to different business conventions down there. We've had a man who went uh, just out of convenience. He didn't mess with the, the getting the license for a business convention in, in which he could have got the license, and he just went through Canada. Um, and uh, Christopher P. Baker, with his Moon Handbook to Cuba, has all of the specifics on that. We'll have um, the specifics of your website and Christopher's website on our website at ricksteves.com. Marcel, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Christopher, any more comments on that? Um, Only that uh, it it is only this last year, in fact, that the Bush administration has begun to actually fine people. A lot of people had been threatened with a fine and were asked to pay, and a lot of people paid up even though they'd never been prosecuted. Um, And it's only this year. They've certainly tightened up. Um, and certainly, if even if you believe that you are legally entitled to go, it is worthwhile uh, making sure that you, if you choose to do it legally and don't want to get uh, fined, that you follow all the, the legal provisions. Right. Now, if somebody feels um, just um, morally that they, they disagree with the embargo and they think that it's counterproductive and they care about the people of Cuba and they don't think uh, continuing the embargo is the effective way to bring them a better life, where do you learn more, and what can you do to get involved in that? Um, well, the Moon Handbook's Cuba, I deal with that issue. Um, I, I deal with the whole ethics, etc. Um, but there are, there are various websites. The, I'm forgetting the, the legal group that exists right now, but uh, a legal forum of lawyers uh, fighting the embargo. Okay. As, as always, we'll have uh, backup material on our website so people can come to our website, look in the archive, and, and get the specifics on that. We have uh, Mariette on the phone from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Thanks for your call. What are you thinking about? Oh, um, well, I was called because I was a student studying abroad in Cuba, uh, not this past January, but the January before. It was a, um, excuse me, a two-week study abroad program. We did have a license, but um, as you probably know, since this last summer, those um, such programs have been canceled with the exception of some longer, um, longer than 10-week programs that still exist in the United States for students. Hmm. How was your experience there? Oh, it was absolutely the most amazing experience of my life, both as far as studies go and traveling go. And just now, come on. What's, how could it be amazing? It's just a poor, ramshackle country, <laughs> a bunch of communists. Uh, well, you've touched a lot about... Um, well, on the um, the people there, and the people are absolutely incredible, but it was also a very amazing uh, learning experience. I was actually on a program um, for comparative globalization, and we went for two weeks. Like I said, we spent half our time in Cuba and half of our time in Oaxaca, Mexico. So um, it was a very, absolutely very interesting perspective. What a cool program. What school was that with? That's through the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, but like I said, it's been canceled since. God. There's a lot of importance that we can gain, a lot of um, understanding we can gain through travel. And uh, I just do not understand how you can make the world a better place by not letting people 
travel and connect and learn from each other. We can bring so much to Cuba, and believe it or not, we can learn a lot from Cuba. All right, Mariette. Well, thank you very much for your um, your call. Sure. Thank you. I'm talking with Christopher P. Baker, who writes the Moon Handbook to Cuba. Christopher, if you're thinking about going to Cuba, uh, I was reading in your book, you, you quoted Bill Bryson. He said, Cuba is a third world country with first world people. What, what did he mean by that? Oh, I think he's referring to the educational levels, the cultural um, profundity of the nation. Uh, very rich culture, very well-educated people, absolutely incredibly literate and versed, uh, knowledgeable about the world. I see. And uh, when we go to Cuba, there's a big cult of Hemingway. Tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> well, Hemingway walked the streets of Havana, no doubt about it. Ernest Hemingway settled in Cuba and lived there for 20 years. He hung out at uh, various bars, the two most famous being Bodeguita del Medio and Floridita. Um, and the, the Cubans worship Hemingway, and they, they love his literature. Um, they believe that he, he loved the underdog, and for that reason that he would have supported the revolution, although that's, um, nobody knows the truth on that. And it's possible to follow the Hemingway, Hemingway Trail through Havana, going to his house, which is now the museum of Ernest Hemingway, visiting um, Kohima, where he had the sports fishing vessel, the Pilar, going to the bars, the Bodeguita del Medio, the Florida, Floridita, having your mojito, having your daiquiri, just as Hemingway did. Wow. Tell me, uh, you've written several books. You've written a book on Havana. Um, I have the Moon Handbook, Havana. Um, I have another guidebook on Cuba. I have uh, a book about motorcycling through Cuba called Mi Moto Fidel, Motorcycling Through Castro's Cuba. And finally, this released this year, a coffee table book on the old American cars called Cuba Classics, a celebration of vintage American automobiles. Wow. And we'll again have all of that on our um, on our website at ricksteves.com. And Christopher's website is travelguidebooks.com. Is that your website? That is my website. Yeah. How did you snare that one? Because <laughs> I got in early. You clever Cuba traveler. <laughs> travelguidebooks.com. Now, I got to say, you've been so outspoken on Cuba, and this is a dicey issue. Personally, have you had any problem? I mean, you're Mr. Cuba here. Yes, I have. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, to some degree. Tell me what's going on. Um, both sides. Um, I'm in the very tricky scenario of I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. Whatever I say is going to offend somebody. If I praise um, the Castro government and there's plenty of praiseworthy things, then I obviously have repercussions or potential repercussions on this side. I'm not going to speak to that. Um, on the other side, um, if I criticize uh, the Castro government, then the Castro government has taken note of that and there have potentially been issues come up. Uh, let me just leave it like that. You know, the role isn't, of a journalist writing about Cuba is not an easy one. Isn't that interesting? Now, you write Moon Handbooks, the originator of the Moon Handbooks, the, Bill Dalton. Do you know him? Oh, I know Bill very well. Bill, he wrote the original great guidebook to Indonesia, and he was just like you, passionate about this country, very straight-talking, a lot of beautiful things, a lot of problems. He was not welcome in the country he spent his whole life promoting, you know, because he talked straight about the government. Right. Well, I think that's the issue. You know, as long as you, you stay away from the third rail issues, then you're okay. Uh, my my take on this, and I'm, travel has, has messed up my perspective, I, so I just see it like a European would, but it just seems like there was a revolution in what, 1958 or when was the revolution? Yep, 58. And uh, all of the um, great capitalists and the rich guys were thrown out and all these communists came in, so they went to Florida. Uh, the communists took their land and took their palaces and took their all of their wealth, and then they tried to sort it out through the people, and it had the good and the bad of communism, and we were unable to throw them out. And now, 40, 50 years later, you still got the people who left, who were um, the, the people, the enemies of the revolution, who went who went to refuge in Florida, waiting to come back and retake their position in Cuba. And now there's even talk of um, America helping these people come back, even a generation later, and take back their king of the mountain position as capitalist overlords of that country. And the rationale would be, with capitalism, they could kick it into high gear and have freedom and democracy and uh, wealthy people bringing the poor people up on their uh, in their coattails. Give me your response to that take on the Cuban Revolution. Well, um, the, a great deal of that I certainly agree with, probably 80% of it. Um, and there's no doubt that the, the ardently anti-Castroite uh, Cuban Americans in Florida certainly um, have a position that some of them at least would love to go back and be king of the Catholic gain. Unfortunately, um, a good deal of those folks also have the ear of the Bush administration. Um, but I think it is a little bit of a simplistic notion. 
um, Cuba has progressed so far uh, in so many ways that it's it's absolutely impossible for um, that scenario to to happen. There'll be civil war in Cuba because um, there are so many people within Cuba who do support um, the Castro government. Of course, it's been a very very destructive process. And um, certainly it's very easy to go to Cuba and not understand realities. It took me about three years, and that's pretty much what uh, my book about motorcycling hmm. from Cuba is about, how I came to uh, realize how naive I'd been by blaming the embargo for all the problems in Cuba. Um, I hadn't understood the degree to which Cuba was an incredibly well-developed nation. The middle class was about as large a middle class as existed in the tropical world at the time. Of course, destroyed. Um, totally destroyed. Nonetheless, um, Cuba has come so far that it has its own middle class, an intellectual middle class, not an economic middle class, etc. And you'll get many millions of Cubans who will defend the revolution verbally and probably with arms if they needed to. And, uh, and to complicate the mix, Cuba, you, when you assess its success, you can write it off because it was just supported financially by the Soviet Union for so long, or you can handicap it by saying it's done this in spite of economic hardships imposed by the United States. And both are true. And how do you, you can't measure it. And it, it's so interesting, uh, conservative types would think it's bad for liberal types to want to go there. Ironically, liberal types might go there and gain a little more conservative take on things. Well, absolutely. And um, that always seems to happen as long as you spend a good deal of time there to, to lift the rug up and see what reality is underneath. Right. Uh, but the problem is, of course, that um, there are people on the, let's put them on the right, want to paint Cuba with a black brush, and people on the left want to paint it with a white brush. And both the black and white are true, but there are all these various shades of gray, a very complicated scenario. It's not easy to, to, to just pin a label on it and say, Cuba is this. And you're the journalist who sees an island 90 miles off the coast of Florida with 11 million people struggling to make their life better, and you're just connecting with those people and trying to sort it out for us Americans who'd like to learn also. Um, absolutely, and uh, let me just say, I'm trying to help uh, the Cubans that I love personally to um, make their lives better too. Good for you. Christopher P. Baker, it has been a delight talking to you and I know our listeners have enjoyed it too. Thanks a lot and best wishes with your work. Thank you very much, Rick. It's been a tremendous pleasure being with you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com where you can look up information on this and other programs in the series. You can also look up topics we're working on for future shows and submit your questions and comments. That's at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is produced in association with KUOW Public Radio in Seattle. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.